It's nearly impossible to exaggerate the importance of loving righteousness and hating wickedness, of, of loving righteousness so much that you actually pursue it and practice it in your daily living, and of hating wickedness so much that you actually flee from it, put it away, and cut off its supply chains. The phrase, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, is a biblical phrase that shows up in Psalm 45 and Hebrews chapter 1, and the phrase is used to describe the character of Jesus. Jesus loved righteousness and lived it and taught it, and He hated wickedness and never did it and urged us to forsake it. And we are called to forsake wickedness and follow the righteous one. Scripture says that God is light and in Him there is no darkness and those who follow Him must also walk in the light. As we've been on our journey through the Gospel of Mark, we've been learning many things. Jesus said in Mark 8.34, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. And after this basic call to discipleship, Jesus then teaches us the many different aspects of what it means to follow Him. Die to self-reliance and participate in His mission through prayerful dependence on the Father. Die to self-exaltation and humbly and gladly serve others for Jesus' sake. Die to tribalism, which we looked at last week, and have a, a genuine appreciation and graciousness toward all of Jesus' followers. And now at the end of Mark chapter 9, we learn another lesson. Die to sin and live in the fullness of our Lord's grace and peace. Before I read verses 42 through 50, one brief word of explanation is in order. When you... Uh, when you consider verses 42 to 50, you would assume that there's nine verses there. And yet in most of our translations, there's only seven. And the reason for that is because in some of the early translations, uh, verse 48, the exact phrase that occurs in verse 48 was also included as verse 44 and as verse 46. But my limited understanding is that the best manuscripts, the best copies of the New Testament, lead us to believe that actually the phrase only occurred at verse 48. Thus, in most of our modern translations, verses 44 and 46 are omitted. It changes nothing in terms of the meaning of the passage, but it does mean that there's only seven verses there. <laughs> so, let me read verses 42 through 50. This is God's holy word. And these are the words of our Lord. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. 
It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the Word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, uh, this is a weighty passage, and I pray that the weightiness of it would be felt. Pray that Your Holy Spirit would shine the light of truth into our hearts, would bring conviction and holy resolve to follow Jesus faithfully. Revive us, renew us in accordance with Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's, there's three interrelated uh, lessons here for us to ponder, and the first lesson flows out of verse 42, and here it is. Take great care not to lead other believers into sin. Take great care not to lead other believers into sin. In the last half of, the, of, the, of chapter 9, there's a significant emphasis on how we relate to our fellow disciples. Remember, we're we're not to be given to proud boasting, but to humbly serve one another. We're to receive all the little ones who belong to Jesus. We're to be gracious toward other disciples who aren't part of our own little subgroup. We're to refresh other disciples as they are serving the Lord. And as our passage concludes, we're called to be at peace with one another. Now, the, the, the specific idea of verse 42 is that as you are in relationship with other believers, you will be an influencer. And the question is, what kind of influence will you be? Just, just think about verse 42 coming right off of verses 36 and 37. really helps to drive it home, I think. Verse 36, and Jesus took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus teaches us to take great care not to be a harmful influence, not to lead other people into sin, not to cause them to spiritually or morally stumble and thus to injure their walk with Christ. And so you should value your brother's spiritual health, your sister's spiritual health. Your holiness is my business. My holiness is your business. The holiness of every member of the congregation is the business of every member of the congregation. Not meddling, but truly caring and wanting to influence others rightly. 
And if you're playing fast and loose with sin, which Jesus talks about in verses 43 to 49, then what kind of influence will you have on your brothers and sisters? Verse verse 42 and verses 43 to 49 are a package deal. If you truly care deeply about your own holiness, your own walk with the Lord, then you will necessarily care deeply about the holiness and spiritual walk of your brothers and sisters. When you look at the warning of verse 42, you might think, maybe I want to opt out of community. (laughs) Maybe I'd rather have no influence than be a bad influence, given how bad it is to be a negative influence, but you don't have that option. Jesus calls us to be part of a community of disciples who are following him together. You can't opt out of this, but you have to ask the question, what kind of influence are you having? And to drive the instruction home, Jesus tells us that it is better to die physically and horribly than to cause spiritual harm to someone else. It would be better for you if a great millstone hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. You got the picture there? Picture two really large, heavy millstones, one on top of the other with just a very little space in between and grain dropped into it and a donkey walking around it, grinding the mill. Okay, we're talking about massively heavy stones with a, with a hole in the middle fit right over your head and would sink you to the bottom of the sea. And you're supposed to think, here's what you're supposed to think. I don't want that to happen. That sounds awful. That sounds terrible. And then you're supposed to think leading a fellow believer into sin is worse than that. False teaching, spiritual abuse, toxic religiosity, making light of godliness. Jesus hates it. It would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than to speak and argue about worthless things. 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul said, Charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. It would be better for you to be crushed by a great millstone than to use people's sins against them. Proverbs 17, 9, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. It would be better for you to be thrown into the ocean with no hope of rescue than to bring the poison of bitterness into the fellowship of God's people. Hebrews chapter 12, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. No, that the stakes are infinitely high. Look, look back at verse 43. This isn't just about killing sin, but it's about killing sin in view of eternity. Okay? Verse 43, it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. 
verse 45, middle of verse 45, it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Middle of verse 47, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everlasting life or everlasting fire? That's what lies before every man, every woman, every child. You've got to understand this term Gehenna. The term Gehenna is the term translated hell. It is different than a term like Sheol or Hades. Sheol or Hades can refer more generically to the place where the dead go awaiting the final judgment. Okay? But the term Gehenna or hell refers to the place of eternal punishment. It's got a real interesting history. Uh, the term Gehenna actually refers to a physical site, the Valley of Hinnom to the south of Jerusalem. It was an awful place. It was a place where some wicked kings of Judah sacrificed their children in the fire in worshiping the god Moloch, the false god Moloch. God hated it. And he said, I'm going to turn that valley into a place of horror and judgment and punishment. And eventually, that valley became a burning garbage dump. And then, as such, it became a symbol of eternal punishment from God on the wicked. That's what Jesus had in mind, for example, when he said in Matthew 10.28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, in, in Gehenna. And Gehenna is typically connected to fire the fire of punishment. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, the Son of Man will send His angels at the end of the age and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When Jesus described the final judgment in Matthew chapter 25, as all the peoples were gathered before Him and He divided them between the, the sheep and the goats, and he said to the goats, representing the wicked who were on his left, he said, depart from me, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The picture here is one of unending horror. For those who are thrown into hell, the punishment and horror and shame is unending. The fire of punishment is never quenched but always burning. And the worms feeding on the damned never die, but are always feeding, always eating. These descriptions point to the reality that this punishment never ends. And so you ought to live your life with these eternal and irreversible consequences always before you. The great day of judgment will se separate all human beings into two camps. There's eternal life or there's unquenchable fire. There's the kingdom of God 
or hell. There's everlasting glory with Jesus or there's everlasting horror and shame forever shut away from the presence of the Lord. And I think this reference to judgment might be the point of verse 49. You can look at verse 49 where Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. This is a very difficult verse to understand. There's many different plausible interpretations. It doesn't, doesn't really affect the basic meaning of the passage, but um, here's my, my take holding it with a, with a loose hand. Um, in context, when you see the word for, the word for at the beginning of verse 49, for typically refers to the reason for what came before, some kind of reason or explanation. Like you see that in verse, in verse 39, when Jesus said, do not stop him, the man casting out demons, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. So you kind of get this this flow of thought where Jesus is telling us to make war against sin. Make war against sin because the stakes are infinitely and eternally high for everyone will be salted with fire. And in verse 49, this fire isn't the fire of punishment like verse 43 and 48, but it's the fire of testing. The fire of testing will come upon every human being particularly at the final judgment, and the fire will reveal your character, which is a metaphorical way of saying that God will publicly expose your character, who you are, to a watching universe. If you are the real deal, the genuine article, you enter eternal life, God's forever kingdom, every crippled limb and every disability totally healed. Every battle-weary Christian soldier clothed in glory. Every act of simple and costly love generously rewarded. But if the fire shows you to be spiritually bankrupt of faith in Jesus and of love for Him and obedience to His words, then you will be cut off from all that is good as we're told in Revelation 21.8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Therefore, in light of all this, as the Apostle Peter told us, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Finally, we come to the third lesson, which flows out of verse 50. Here's the third lesson. Take aim to be spiritually healthy and at peace with your Christian brothers and sisters. Now, as I walk through this, you might think, how does, how does this relate to verses 42 to 49? It relates a lot, so just walk with me through this, okay? Jesus wants his people to be salty, he actually calls us the salt of the earth, and as the salt of the earth, we're, we're supposed to be salty, seasoned, flavorful, useful, able to make a positive impact. And it's interesting, when Jesus talks about us being the salt of the earth and how we need to be salty in the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount it immediately follows the Beatitudes, which make the point that the disciples saltiness is tied to 
their spiritual health. If you are poor in spirit, if you mourn over those things which break the heart of God, if you are gentle, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you are merciful, if you are pure in heart, if you are peacemakers, if you are persecuted for for righteousness' sake and not bitter about it, but rather rejoice that you have the opportunity to share in the sufferings of Christ, then you will be salty. And those same kinds of those same kinds of character qualities are unfolding for us in the Gospel of Mark, right? Don't be proud, but be humble, a humble servant. Don't be self-promoting, but be a servant of others. Don't be territorial, but be generous and large-hearted. Don't be casual about sin, but make war against sin. And so when Jesus says, have salt in yourselves, he means something along the lines of, make sure that God's grace is changing you. And that God's Word is setting the agenda. And that God's kingdom is the thing that's holding your attention. And that Jesus is your continual focus. Salty disciples in salty congregations are in the habit of influencing one another toward holiness and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And as you are doing this, as a community of disciples, Jesus says, be at peace with one another. That's one of the things he's been talking about all along. Don't argue about who is the greatest. Be at peace with one another. Don't be too proud to associate with the lowly. Be at peace with one another. Don't compete against each other or hold grudges or give each other the cold shoulder, but be at peace with one another. Don't put a stumbling block in in front of a brother or sister, but be at peace in one another, at peace in one, with one another in Jesus as you're following him together. Do you want to live in the sweet spot of God's salty grace? I titled this sermon, At War with Sin and at Peace with Each Other. Okay? But you know what the sinful mind and the fleshly world does? The exact opposite. They are at peace with sin and at war with one another. That is the way of the world. That is the way of the flesh. That is the way of faltering marriages, broken families, unhealthy churches, dysfunctional societies. Instead of taking drastic measures against sin, we treat sin lightly and we treat people harshly. Why? We treat sin lightly because we treat holiness lightly, because we treat Jesus lightly, and we exalt self and trample on anyone who gets in our way. And Jesus says, you're not to be like that. And by it, many become defiled. It would be better for you to drown in the Atlantic than to stir up senseless divisions among God's people. Romans chapter 16, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. It would be better for you to be swallowed up by the sea than to entice the immature with fleshly desires. Second Peter chapter 2 talks about these false teachers full of lust and greed who entice unsteady 
souls. It would be better for you to die a horrible physical death than to pressure a weak believer to sin against his or her conscience. As Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 8, to pressure a believer to act contrary to his or her conscience is to wound their conscience, conscience and sin against Christ. Do you see the pattern? Ruin. Separation. Defilement. Deceiving. Enticing. Wounding. Do you feel the weight of this? Be utterly horrified at the very thought of causing spiritual injury to a precious soul. A little one. We're all little ones who believe in Jesus. Picture Jesus, the good shepherd, holding one of his little sheep in his arms and be filled with dread at the prospect that you would do or say anything that would lead that little sheep to go astray. Verse 42 care deeply about the spiritual health of your brothers and sisters. Of course, as I've already said, the kind of person who cares about the spiritual health of your brothers and sisters is the kind of person who cares about your own spiritual health. And that leads us to lesson number two, flowing out of verses 42 to 49. Here it is. Take drastic measures to make sure that you don't sin. Now, by sin, what we really mean here is this. Take, take drastic measures to make sure that you don't go down any path that leads you away from Jesus. The utter seriousness of what Jesus is saying is unmistakable. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. This instruction is deadly serious. The fact that Jesus is, is using metaphorical and symbolic language to get his point across does not lessen the seriousness of it. When I say metaphor and symbolic language, what I mean is Jesus does not actually intend for you to physically and literally chop off or tear out your physical body parts. Don't do that. Obey Jesus and don't do that because that's not what he intends. The, in fact, the instruction isn't even really about hands, feet, and eyes. Your hands, feet, and eyes do not cause you to sin. And cutting off a limb or tearing out an eye would not address the actual cause of your sin. The thief's problem is not the hand that reaches out to steal or the feet that have carried him to the robbery site, but the covetous heart that desires what is not his. The fornicator's problem is not the eyes that see a desirable object, but the lustful heart that craves what isn't his. Jesus is the one who taught us this. Right? Mark 7, verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, 
wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Our hands and our feet and our eyes only do the bidding of our hearts. So what Jesus is doing in verses 43 to 47 is he's using a word picture to press upon us the urgent obligation that we all have to make war against sin. Here's what the instruction conveys to us. You must take sin with utmost seriousness. You must kill sin at its source. Find any launching site for sin in your own heart and kill it. You must take violent, extreme, uncomfortable, and inconvenient measures to kill sin. Do whatever it takes to cut it out of your life. You must value your holiness and your fellowship with Christ, and your eternal comfort far more than you cherish your temporal comfort. And just a a word of application here. If there is a pattern of sin that has been growing in your life, if there is some unhealthy and soul-depleting habit that has been gaining steam in your life, You need to take heed and do whatever it takes to cut it out of your life. In all you're doing, your hands. In all you're going, your feet. In all you're seeing, your eyes. You need to make sure that you are staying close to Jesus and to His words and that you are being vigilant to resist every temptation to get off track. Now, what I'm about to say is especially important. It is possible to imagine someone making a fear-based, guilt-induced, joyless effort to kill sin. And that effort is going to lead to increasing ugliness and despair. When the attempt to overcome sin is not fueled by faith in Jesus and love for Him, then all you will get is a form of godliness without God's grace, without God's power, without God's holiness, without God's beauty. All you'll get is stuffy religiosity and despair. And so remember the context of our instruction. Jesus said... Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And the idea is that if you, if you follow him, if you share in his mission and in his suffering, if you treasure his words and his words shape your life, then you will be part of God's family now and you will share in his glory forever. And the heart of a true believer says, yes, I believe. I believe in Christ. I find Jesus compelling. He cleanses the leper. Mark chapter 1. He forgives the paralytic, chapter 2. He calms the storm, chapter 4. He raises the dead, chapter 5. He heals the demoniac, chapter 6. He, heals the, he, he feeds the multitudes, chapter 6 and 8. He opens deaf ears and opens blind eyes, chapter 7 and 8. He shines forth in the radiance of His Father on the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 9. And the Father says, This is My beloved Son. Listen to Him. 
He is the Messiah, full of grace, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Chapter 10, and this Lord Jesus says, back in chapter 2, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, and I'm sick, apart from Jesus, apart from His grace. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And He says, follow Me. Follow Me. This is the one who says, follow Me. Die to anything that would get between you and Me. And sin always gets between us and the Lord. Thus, die to sin. Kill it. Cut it away so that you can stay close to Jesus as you follow Him on the path that leads to everlasting glory. The true disciple, thus, wants to do verses 43 to 47 because the true disciple is following Jesus, loves Jesus, trusts Jesus, treasures His words. So if you're out there right now and you're thinking, making war against sin, boring, not interested, doesn't sound fun. Listen, you've got way more important things to deal with than taking a few steps of moral fortitude. You need to fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot kill unforgiven sin. It will never happen. You cannot kill sin of which you remain guilty and ashamed and in bondage to fear and punishment. You will never make true headway against it. You've got to believe into the truth of the Gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ came to die as an atoning sacrifice for sins so that everyone who believes in Him would be forgiven and reconciled to God and be indwelt by His Spirit. And it is on that basis that we put sin to death. The Apostle Paul reiterates the very same truth that Jesus is talking about. He says, since you've been raised with Christ, if you've been raised with Christ, since you've been raised with Him, and you are now hidden with Him in God, on that glorious basis of salvation and fellowship with God and affection for Him, then make war against sin. The true disciple knows, and all those who have ears to hear, okay? You are to be hard on sin, especially your own, and you're to be kind to each other. You're to be at war with sin and at peace with each other. You're to treat sin mercilessly. Cut it off. Tear it out. But treat others mercifully and graciously and tenderheartedly forbear forgive be patient be the first to repent of your own sin be the first to forgive your brother or sister for his or her sin this is not the way of boring stuffy morally uptight religiosity This is the way of spiritual and relational beauty where God's grace conquers your heart and enables you to build loving and peaceful fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So, for example, if someone says an unkind word, the temptation is, 
oh, that, that rubs me the wrong way. That has wounded my ego. I am going to rise up and counterattack the person. What you ought to do is rise up and attack the sin that would be so self-absorbed and egocentric as to respond as if it's all about your glory and honor. Kill the sin. Love the brother. Love the sister. Jesus made war against sin by bearing the guilt and punishment of our sin. He died in our place. He took responsibility for our sin and was crushed for our iniquities so that everyone who comes to believe in Him will never be crushed. He warred against sin and poured out grace on the sinner. Do you see? And now in some small way, we get to echo the Savior's example by fighting against sin and by fighting for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Be at war with sin and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would internalize this instruction with the Holy Spirit's help. I pray that there would be holy conviction, holy urgency, holy passion, holy resolve, holy love. I pray that you would build us up as a forgiven people who counted a great joy to follow Jesus together and to walk in peace and to labor side by side and to shine the Savior's light into our dark world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.